We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We're here for the third live interview of the day in Nashville, Tennessee, with the legendary chess coach, executive director of the National Scholastic Chess Foundation, coach of Hunter, uh, just chess author, wrote a great book um, many years ago called Best Lessons of a Chess Coach, and more recently, last year, co-authored Great Moves, Learning Chess Through History, which I've been enjoying immensely in preparation for this interview. Uh, Sunil Wiramatri, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. So, Sunil, we've got to start at the beginning because you, we go way back. Uh, I went to a chess program called Masterman, which also has alumni such as the Shahadis and some other masters have come out of it along the years. And we st- our schools were rivals over the years, uh, Masterman and Hunter. Uh, tangled many times trying to win national championships and sometimes you guys came out on top and sometimes we did but for me and I think for a lot of people who will will be familiar with your writing and your coaching um, and all that you've done for chess 
uh, your coaching is sort of where the thread begins. And we know that you're from Sri Lanka, but I, at least personally, haven't seen anything about how you got to the U.S. and uh, how you took up chess coaching. I took a slow boat over here, Ben. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it was kind of uh, a long way here. I um, uh, was born in Sri Lanka. I lived there till I was 11 years old. And my father got stationed in Geneva, Switzerland, so I did all my secondary education in Switzerland. Uh, then I went to law school in England, and then I ended up over here um, bumming around and playing chess. Oh, that's, so I already <laughs> learned something. I didn't know that you'd gone to law school. Yeah, I did not uh, practice as a lawyer. In fact, I didn't finish my final exam, but uh, it was a very uh, important and formative experience in uh, in my life, and I think uh, there's an, uh, a strong connection actually between what I'm doing now and you know what I did when I was in law school. So, what what's the connection? Well, you know, I that's where I really began to see the connections between uh, between chess and other disciplines, especially law. I saw a very strong connection between chess and the law, and uh, so that got me thinking about incorporating chess into the uh, regular curriculum. Uh, particularly to highlight a thinking process that is involved. And um, so that's what really pointed me in the direction that I'm going in now. And so you, how'd you <coughs> end up in New York? Uh, my father was working for the Security Council in okay. the United Nations. So you moved to New York at what age? Um, around 20, uh, the early 20s. Uh, and... Um, but then I put in for immigration, officially immigrated in 83. Okay. And you were playing chess the whole time or? Attempting to, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, we've played a few times. So I know that, I know that you know your way around the chessboard. It's been, it's been a long time, but uh, I know you've got a plus score against me. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so, you can't be, so you can't be too modest because that'll make me feel bad. <laughs> um, not, so, so you, you played chess all along, and then you you saw that you saw an opportunity for, and you had a desire to teach. So once you once you thought about that, what was the next step? Well, I responded to an ad uh, at Hunter, seeking a, a chess teacher, and I had done some private instruction, uh, mainly one on one, but never really in a group. So I walked into the principal's office, and he said, "So you teach chess?" I said, "Yes." And uh, he said, all right, um, follow me. Um, took me to a sixth grade classroom, stopped the class that was in progress, told the classroom teacher, give me everyone who doesn't know anything about chess. Rounded out up about a dozen kids. They turned to me and said, uh, you have 15 minutes, teach them. <laughs> and I guess you did okay. I guess I did okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing because I, I'm. We've talked before. It's been we've had several uh, well-known and accomplished chess teachers here on the show, and uh, we've talked before about how chess teaching doesn't necessarily come naturally to chess players. So, did you feel, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, do you feel like you were a good communicator right off the bat? Well, I didn't know that until I started doing it. 
Mm-hmm. And and then I I saw that I was able to break things down into a fairly simple form and explain them, and I think that's what a lot of chess players don't do. I mean, if you just ask a chess player questions, why are you doing it? So I'll be doing it because we do it, mm-hmm. you know. And they don't really break it down, and and um, breaking it down into its simplest form is is an art in itself. And somehow I seem to have a facility for doing that. Uh, in a way that people understood. And so I realized this is something that I could really pursue. Excellent. And we've got to get more details on this because it was at the time that you started this program or had a hand in starting this program at Hunter, uh, chess programs were so rare. So do you have an idea what what um, what gave the principal the idea to establish a chess program? Well, Hunter was a, a laboratory school that... Um, was interested in exploring uh, innovative uh, teaching methods and uh, subjects and so forth. So it seemed like a good fit. It's you know it had a very good reputation uh, nationally for uh, for doing that. And so um, so why not experiment? You know, and uh, I made a good case for why it should be included. And the point here was that uh, we were not seeking to produce chess players uh, simply to introduce uh, uh, the uh, critical thinking or higher-order thinking skills, as people like to say today, mm-hmm. um, uh, at a much younger age than is typically done in schools. Because in schools, you don't engage in this kind of thinking until you start the sciences. And so you are waiting maybe fifth grade, sixth grade, middle school level, really. So why not introduce, you know, these thinking skills at a younger age and uh, everybody stands to benefit? Yeah. And for those who don't know, I lived in New York for many years and Hunter is just and has an incredible reputation in in the New York school world i think is that you have to be in the the one top 1% of uh, test scores in order to even have hopes of getting admitted yes it is a public school but it's a public school that's uh, open uh, through uh, well, open examination and mm-hmm. uh, so you have to test in and there are two entry points there is an entry point in kindergarten and one in 7th grade that's it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at one period uh, of one period of time, we used to take in a pre-K. There was a pre-K for about ten years, so I did have the experience of teaching chess in a pre-K, you know, class. But then, with uh, funding and so forth, the pre-K got cut, and the entry point became kindergarten. Um, so, yes, it was um, it was a good um, a good experience all around. Yeah, and for for listeners. Uh, just to connect it to the the current chess world, I mean, there are many master level players who've come out of the Hunter program, but Macaulay Peterson of uh, the Full English Breakfast and many, you know, working for Chess Base and has been on Perpetual Chess is uh, is also a Hunter alum. So uh, 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 there's there's proof that they produce, you know, <laughs> upstanding citizens such as Macaulay. So shout out to Macaulay. Um, so we, did you have another job at this point when you started to get work teaching at Hunter? Um, uh, no, actually, I was quite unemployed. I was uh, uh, much to the dismay of my parents, uh, and uh, and I was, you know, really the black sheep of the family, so to speak, because it was expected that I would go to law school and be an outstanding lawyer. Uh, so my father was quite upset with me. 
Um, and, um, you know, when I first came to the States, I really had no idea of geographic distance. I would pick up a magazine and I would see, oh, chess tournament in Minnesota, $500 first prize. And I thought, hmm, this weekend I'll go to Minnesota, you see. I had absolutely no idea of distance. And uh, so you, I was playing around, you know, just playing tournaments and uh, doing some teaching. And then I got lucky because I won the New York States. And uh, that was in 75. And, and you know, my main rival, um, the competition in the tournament was uh, former world junior champion Julio Kaplan. And I happened to win the game. And, um, and I, you know, and, and, and that's got everything started, really. So do you feel like having that title uh, was critical or was it the prize or what was it about that result? That No, no, it certainly wasn't the prize. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so, but you never know. But the title went a long way. I mean, people seem to feel that that was a big deal. You know, New York State champion. I think so, yeah. Far more important than FIDE Master or right. anything like that. You know, somehow they seem to relate to that. Oh, you must be good if you won the New York State. So... Um, and in fact, actually, that's really what launched my teaching career because I was playing in the local club and, um, and the club recommended someone had called the club and asked for a chess teacher. And I hadn't done any teaching actually before then. Club recommended me because I happened to be a state champion. And the person, uh, the name of the person who had called the club was a certain Jarecki. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting, Carol Jarecki. Yeah. Right. And the parents called me and said, you know, we have this uh, child who is quite, a, um, you know, interested in chess. You know, would you be, would you, are you willing to teach him? I said, absolutely not. I don't teach children. And uh, <laughs> wrong answers. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they they were persistent. They they just insisted on coming over. I couldn't really say no. So so the kid came over to my place. I played a few games with him and, and, it's, and then I I was thinking, you know, this guy this kid is way better than I ever was <laughs> at that age. <laughs> And uh, so that's what happened. John was my first student. Excellent. And at what point did you start to think, oh, maybe this can be a career? Well, you know, you and I was never really sure about it. In fact, I was quite concerned because of what happens when your students dry up. You know, right. you have two or three students and they all, you know, quit playing chess or they, you know, you, they lose interest. And, and then I realized that um, that will really never be the case because there's always new kids coming into kindergarten. You know, so you know, if I can't get a few people interested, then I shouldn't be doing this anyway. Mm-hmm. And now your program's in 70 schools. Is that, is that count current? The foundation in the New York area, yeah, we are in about 70 schools. Uh, but I like to be in the classroom. So I, you know, I, I still teach at Hunter. Uh, well, not so much anymore. Uh, but I run the program. Um, and I started that in 79. Um, uh, then Spire approached me and asked me to set up their program from scratch. So I'm the director of the Spire Chess program as well. So those are the two programs that I have a physical presence in the mm-hmm. classroom. And is your business structured as a profit or nonprofit? It's a nonprofit. Okay. It's a nonprofit. Uh, we uh, incorporated as a C3 back in 91. And we got our final determination from the IRS two years later. Okay. So it took you many years to, to figure out, okay, I should go the nonprofit route. Yes. Yeah, because we've had Jay Stallings, who again is in the audience, who of course has a nonprofit, and we've also had some. You know, there's a lot of sort of uh, 
um, sole proprietors types such as myself who run their own businesses but don't necessarily have people working for them. But then also we've had uh, chess teachers who have for-profit. So it's a topic of particular interest to me, like what goes into the decision when to form a nonprofit. So what what happened with your business where you decided that would be the best way to go? Well, we felt that, you know, incorporating as a nonprofit allowed us to fundraise and um, and uh, do programs during the school day uh, for, uh, you know, for uh, the children um, who may not elect to do chess as an after-school activity. But when you do something during the school day, you cannot charge them for it. You know, so you have to go and provide that service. Uh, and sometimes the school is in a position to pay. Uh, sometimes the school's not. There have been cases where I got tax levied funds for that because school districts uh, uh, approved the line item budget for chess. Um, but uh, it had to be a not-for-profit because otherwise I couldn't have raised the money to actually go in and, you know, do the teaching during the day. Oh, okay. That's a, a good reason. So before we get back to your teaching, one thing that I've just realized that we ne- neglected to to get into is, so we know that you came to the, the U.S. and made your way from Sri Lanka to England to the U.S. and were already a strong chess player. But what was your introduction to chess as a child? How did you get into it to begin with? Oh, my grandfather wanted to spend time with me. And his idea of spending quality time was to teach me how to play chess. So he taught me how to play chess and proceeded to beat me every single day for at least a year, a year and a half. And, <laughs> you know, and taught me a lot of bad things that I had to undo uh, right. a few years later. <laughs> so he had like a, a street chess style or just sort of his own yeah, ideas? he was an amateur chess player who had a couple of chess books. He just loved to play, you know. And uh, But, you know, it, it, it was great. It, it was a really uh, a good bonding experience. And... And, and that also, you know, strengthened my belief that there was a real place for this game. Um, you know, it's uh, just uh, the way it transcended generations and so forth. So, uh, And once your interest was peaked, how were you able to get better advice than you were getting from your grandfather? Oh, <laughs> well, actually, uh, it, it started when I joined the Geneva Chess Club at the age of 30. And I'd, I, I had lived there for about a year, and I didn't know that there was a chess club. I was playing in the school chess club, but that was kind of easy. And then um, I found out about the club. I joined the club and then um, uh, got good pretty quickly from age of 13 to I was about 2300 at 15. Oh, wow. Um, and I won the um, I won the uh, ab- what they call the absolute championship of the Canton of Geneva, which which had all the the past champions and and various qualification criteria. Final round robin of eight players, and I won all seven games. So that was when I was fifteen years old, and so I was actually doing extremely well. And then my parents stopped me playing chess. So they confiscated my chess set, wow. uh, told me I cannot go to the club uh, and all that. And so, you know, then I just played off and on since then. So how did uh, how did you take that when your parents um, pulled well, the rug out from under you? You know, in, in our part of the world, you don't fight it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> you just have to grin and bear it. You, you accept it. I mean, no, of course I wasn't happy, but I didn't get to play a single game of chess for two years. Wow. And and uh, going to reaching the level of uh, 2300 at the age of 15 and doing it in just two years, 
that's impressive even now. But back then, that was, you know, without tactics trainers and without, you know, that YouTube was... videos. I mean, there <laughs> it was pretty unprecedented. I there, there was nothing. You yeah. know, there were no books. The English, the Batsford books started coming out in the early 1970s. You had like an old edition of Modern Chess Openings. I think I had the 10th edition. You know, that was about, you know, that is about all I had. Even in French, you didn't have very strong, very good chess books. I mean, in German, yes, in Russian, yes, but the trans they weren't translated or, or they weren't available to us. So there was nothing. So the only way that I got better was to go and play Blitz at the club. Okay. So years ago on Saturdays, you know, a dollar in, you know, uh, you win two games, you pick up the two dollars. And, mm-hmm. you, and in the, the winner's days, you play three-man pool, you know, and... Um, and there were some players that were able to give. A yeah, there were there were there were some very very influential people in my uh, in my chess career that that actually took an interest in me and helped me, and um, you know so I, I really owe them a lot for having uh, having done that. Okay, and so then you you make your way to so getting back to Hunter at some point you know, you're a strong chess player, but you've got to figure out what to teach. I mean, you're doing these classes <laughs> and there's hardly any materials. I mean, there were chess books, but they were, I, I mean, I remember from when I was a kid there, I feel like they didn't cover the whole spectrum of chess ability the way that they do now, uh, where you have books like the Steps books and like uh, Coach Jay's books. Um, so what B- did you, what did pants, you, right? what's that? Burning Yeah, pants. exactly. <laughs> um, so what did you, teach the kids like well what i figured out early on was that the content was not as important as the process because for what i was trying to do which was to teach them how to think so um i i use what i call a set position approach i I just take an interesting position and we'd we'd dissect it we'd analyze it you know up back to front inside out you know and and uh, sometimes we would go through like a whole period doing nothing other than analyzing one position. And then I would bounce questions off of each other. You know, if you tell me, well, <clears throat> I think this is good and I, I take your question, bounce it off somebody else. Well, why do you think he's saying that? You know, and um, it, it just sort of came very naturally. And the more I did it, it you know, then I started to see a, a certain way of doing things. And um, at, at one point, I mean, some people thought I was being heretical because I wasn't showing games. I was just analyzing a position and they were not even playing. But but the point was to get the process across, you know, and, um, and I think I succeeded. Yeah, I think so too. So definitely, I mean, you've worked with a lot of strong players uh, but what about like the more beginner type level were you doing that with like kids who barely know what a pin is and stuff like that or? oh absolutely i mean you know it's it's not you know nobody came sort of you know full fledged right. from the you know um it, it's uh i had to take an interest in 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 everything including how the knight moves you know absolute basic moves and uh, and so that's when i started thinking about about the real, about the best order in which to to teach the pieces, uh, the conventional wisdom at the time was that you should do the pawn game, and in fact, I recall in the early 1980s, even U.S. Chess published something called Pawn and Queen, and <clears throat> and in between, and you started with the pawn game, um, and this never made any sense to me at all. 
Um, and it, but it took a while to crystallize my ideas and so forth. And then once I created the Chessing Education Committee for the U, U.S. Chess, and we started doing workshops around the country. And then I started presenting papers. And, and now it's sort of accepted that, you know, you shouldn't start with the pawn. But, but, you know, my thinking at the time was, you know, here's a game of rules. And what's the logic in starting to teach this game with the most illogical piece of all? Right. You know, so it, it just didn't make any sense to me. And, and, and so, you know, you do the, what conforms to the rules and you add, you know, the, uh, the pieces that don't uh, later on. And in fact, that's what chess is about, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you want to be really good, you have to break the rules. But, yeah, yeah. But you better know the rules first. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I don't, we don't tell our students that right <laughs> no, away. No, no, of course not. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they have to find that out later. Um, so along the way, you also started to do some writing. So you wrote Best Lessons of a Chess Coach, which a lot of chess coaches uh, think very highly of. And at the time, again, there weren't as many intermediate level books. Um, so what, what made you decide to, to go into the lucrative business of uh, chess writing? <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. I am still counting my royalties. <laughs> yes, <enough. I'm> sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, what was interesting was that, um, so I used to give a lot, a lot of lectures. And, and, and the way this book uh, came into existence was that, a friend of mine who's actually uh, is my co-author, um, Ed Eusebi, he followed me around for, you know, a year, year and a half. And he, um, he uh, taped um, my lectures. And, um, and then he gave me transcripts. And he said, you know, this is kind of interesting. You know, why don't we, you know, why don't we do something with this? So, so we sifted through, you know, a whole bunch of tapes and then picked you know, 10 or 12 and try to put them together in some form. And and um, so I remember when I first took it to the publisher, it was, the publisher was Random House the first time around. Uh, and the editor told me, uh, you know, this book is too long. And uh, maybe we can, uh, you know, we can, we can shorten it a little, you know, take out some of these wrong answers that you have in there <laughs> and everything. And I, I looked horrified and I told him, ah, you really don't get it, do you? <laughs> because, uh, you know, obviously it's the point is, uh, you know, you get so much more mileage out of the wrong answers. And that's something I learned through years of teaching, you know, that, that uh, it, rather than tell somebody, you know, what to do, if somebody tells you what they think and then you can correct that, that, you know, it made the point much more forcefully. So that's why I kept that format in the book. And, um, you know, all the feedback I've gotten over the years has been very positive uh, as people felt that there was dialogue and there was discussion uh, rather than just, you know, being, you know, a dry uh, presentation. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my impression of it as well, and and I've seen it recommended by many coaches <laughs> over the years. So but you should know that I uh, hopefully I will be able to finish this, but but I'm working on a 25th anniversary edition. Oh, excellent! Well, yeah, and because I think it's out of print, correct? It's it's out of print, and but you know what's amazing? So I've rewritten four chapters, you know, keeping the original format and everything, and and you know I have to tell you when you look at something. You know, 25 years later, and you think, wow, why did everybody say it's so right? It <laughs> <laughs> could well, be so much better. Yeah. Is it, is it the chess moves or the presentation or? No, it is the, it is how, t 
tight something is, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, the ideas and how many tangents you take off on and, and is the, are the central themes clear enough or could they be, you know, better, you know, clarified and, uh, so yeah, so I I I like the rewrite. I I hope I get to finish it. Yeah, well, I think any content producer, be they a writer or a podcast host or anything else, they can understand. You know, always wanting to tinker, just being like, oh, I, it could have been, it could have been better. But at some point, you just have to to let go. But at least you're getting one more pass. So we'll, right, we'll look forward to that in a Thank new you. a new generation of. Uh, of uh, chess enthusiasts can can check it out along with your new book great moves learning through chess history which was co-authored by alan abrams and robert mcclellan just to give uh, full credit and this is just a beautiful book with just incredible detail so what's the story of how this book uh, came into existence well this started actually as an idea of alan's uh, to uh, to present stories about chess history he had been experimenting this with one of the programs he had in the south bronx and he brought me in uh, to talk to those kids, and then he showed me the manuscript, and he needed somebody to uh, to give some annotations to the games and so forth, uh, which which I did, and we had a manuscript, but uh, it didn't really go anywhere because um, it wasn't in a form that that made any sense, and so we shelved the we shelved the whole project until. Um, you know, five years ago, so uh, four years ago, I think, when I brought Robert McClellan on, when I hired him as the uh, communications director for NSCF. And I happened to show him this material, and he said, you know, this is very interesting. This really, you know, we could package it like this. And, you know, so I said, okay, let's go for it. Let's see what, you know, what happens. And and then we had to, you know, as we did it, we realized all the shortcomings and then we had to rewrite some sections and so forth. And then, you know, we saw certain things were missing and where exactly should we position it. Um, and I felt that, uh, you know, this obviously is for maybe on a slightly uh, lower level than best lessons. I think, you know, when I when I wrote best lessons, I was targeting an audience of about 1,400 to 2,000. That was my target audience. And I think I hit that too because... Um, because the comments I have gotten over the years have been, you know, very positive in that regard, but even a little bit higher, a little bit lower. At this one, I thought, you know, um, I want to tie it into some of the workshops I do around the country. And, and so, uh, has somebody who only has the knowledge of how to move the pieces, uh, that they would have something that they could follow. And so it's rather an ambitious project, Ben, because it, it, it you know, it, it, um, uh, what I set out to do was to uh, use the history. So there were really two timelines. There's the chronology moving forward, and, and there's the instruction that gains in complexity, you know, as we move forward. Um, and uh, so we decided that uh, we'll focus on the period uh, that ends with Paul Morphy, um, and then where to start. And so we went back to about 1485, and so that's really the you know the the uh, the meat of the uh, you know the the content, uh, but then you know it, it didn't seem to make sense not to have anything about the previous history. So of course I summarized the you know two thousand years in ten right. pages or something like that, right? But to, just to set the stage and then and then pick up the stories from there. Um, so. 
you know, and as we, I was doing it, now I realize the, uh, the importance because uh, as I'm doing a lot more work in the curriculum, what I find is that classroom teachers are much more inclined to take uh, the subject of chess serious, more seriously uh, if we provide points of intersection with the regular curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, and to me, this is the first logical point of intersection because chess and history or chess and social studies, you know, is is an obvious first point of intersection. And I have a couple of other plans, you know, with other points of intersection, which I want to try and complete. Um, but uh, so so that's why it, it went over well. But I was also hoping to hit the crossover market. And and just have people who are interested in history know a little bit of chess, but maybe they'll skip all the chess that's in it, uh-huh. you know, and just read the stories. The elusive just- chess crossover <laughs> market, yeah. <laughs> so, but Sunil, I, whether or not people outside of the chess world pick up this book, I mean, chess the chess players and classroom teachers will benefit greatly for it. I mean, there's from it. There's just so much detail about sort of. You know, classic players like Greco, you just you guys have fleshed out so many details to Philidor and then even to as you get to Paul Morphy, as you say, where where you guys leave things. I mean, there's details about the opera game, you know, probably most famous chess game of all time. And you guys have so much more detail than I'd known about that previously, like about because I've as a chess teacher, of course, I've shown this game, you know, hundreds of times like every other chess teacher. And every once in a while, the kids stump me with a good question, such as wasn't it rude for them to be playing chess in the middle of an opera? And I certainly was. I thought it was, but I never knew the details. And then there you have it in the details that and and another question that kids have asked me that I was like, you know, that's a good question is why do they have a chess set at the opera? And I said, <laughs> and that also is answered in the, uh, in the book. So kudos to you for, uh, for answering these long held mysteries. Well, thank you. You know, I mean, the doing the research was absolutely fascinating. And, uh, and we did come across, you know, little gems, certainly, you know, for example, learning that, uh, Thomas Jefferson sold his copy of L'Analyse's Echec by Philidor, uh, and to, to raise money before he left for France as the, as the envoy to France, to Paris, and that it was bought by James Monroe. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, just, it's been very interesting. So what sources did you guys use to, to uncover all this information? Well, some of it are primary sources and from, uh, from newspaper, you know, articles at the time and so forth. But the challenge was to separate fact from fiction uh, when it came to Morphe. Because uh, so much has been written on Morphe, but a lot of it is, was fiction. And it was the, uh, you know, Francis Parkinson Keyes, right, who wrote the... Uh, uh, but but you know it, uh, we found that the the truth was certainly interesting enough. The fact was interesting enough that that we could like leave the fiction out, and it was still interesting. So uh, so that's what we did. Yeah, and it and it's for chess teachers listening. Uh, it's a beautifully presented book. It's got in addition to a lot of historical detail, it also has really uh, nicely presented puzzles, so it can be used as sort of. A, handout material as well so definitely um i strongly recommend it to um to anyone thank you i just want to give a shout out to mongoose because uh 
uh, as the publisher, they were extremely uh, proactive and and listened to us. Uh, the book was presented, you know, with plenty of white space, good binding, good quality paper, and so forth. Yeah, they did a really nice production. Yeah, and of course, I know that it sounds like you're pretty busy as it is. I mean, you're busy with the National Scholastic Chess Foundation. You're busy with your nonprofit. Um, you know, helping Hikaru with his career. You, you've got a lot going on. But of course, I couldn't help but wonder when you left things off at Morphe, I wondered, oh, is there going to be a sequel someday? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. You know, it's very tempting. But but uh, I, 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 there are a couple of other directions I want to pursue first. And, and a lot more has been written from Steinitz on. So I don't think they need someone else. But, you know, the earlier part was not easily accessible. You had to go and find some scholarly, you know, tome somewhere. You know, uh, we wanted to make the history of chess a lot more accessible, and uh, and I think uh, I, I think I succeeded. Yeah, I think so too. Um, okay, so Sunil, we've only got a limited amount of time, and we have so many topics to discuss. So I do. I just mentioned uh, your stepson Hikaru, and I'm old enough to remember when Asuka, who also beat me in a tournament game. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I had to. I tried to find the game. I not the actual game, but I tried to find the tournament record online. But unfortunately, I think it happened a little bit before USCF picks up the records. But I have the distinct memory of I was. I'm nine years older than Asuka, and I have the distinct memory of playing either Asuka or Hikaru when they were probably six or seven. And I think it was at a U.S. Open because uh, we both went to a lot of U.S. Opens in those years. And I remember what I remember most is that they were very small and that they stood up the whole game, but but still beat me. So uh, but I wanted to hear what it was like uh, teaching them because Asuka became a master. And of course, everyone listening knows what became of Hikaru. So did you think that they were going to achieve great things or you know it's very interesting uh <clears throat> i of course met my wife through um, through chess because um and and oscar was the common factor because it was at the uh national uh elementary school championships and oscar was playing in the kindergarten and you know and he won the kindergarten and a mutual friend introduced us and so forth and i didn't know him till then but i I, I remember, you know, talking to him during the game and, and I was sort of impressed that he knew, uh, where to find material, like how to research and things like that. And, um, and of course, Oscar became so good. In fact, he became so good that I did not want Hikaru to play chess. And I tried to push Hikaru away from it and it had the opposite effect. Um, but I was just concerned that, uh, Hikaru might not be able to live up to his brother. You know, and Oscar, Oscar has a record that will never be broken with 13 national championships. Wow. So, um, you know, he still plays online. Uh huh. Um, he doesn't play seriously, you know, in tournaments anymore. But, um, I think he wouldn't be upset if I divulge the fact that he gets kind of upset and furious if he loses a, huh. a blitz game to a 2500 oh, wow. okay. <laughs> and the other day he was he was quite dismayed he said dad you know my 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 blitz rating has just dropped below 2500 wow. i didn't know he cared you yeah know? <laughs> and he's only a year older than hikaru is that correct it's about a year and three quarters okay yeah yeah because yeah. i just saw they were born one year apart which my memory was of them yeah, a wider and gap seven but but it's a year and three quarters okay you know, so like February and December, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, and, and then Hikaru, what can I say? You know, I mean, as a chess player, it's just been great for me because 
because of Hikaru, I have been able to get to know the best players in the world. I can, you know, socialize with them and so forth. And they probably would not have given me the time of day. (laughs) 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 But um, yeah, it's been great. So, uh, so yeah, you've gotten to travel the world. Uh, you go to some of Hikaru's tournaments when you when you can. So tell us a little more what it's like. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're having dinner with like you know legendary chess players, and you know seeing all the behind the scenes stuff. So what? Oh, absolutely. You know, I remember one dinner in Zurich with Gelfand was sitting here across uh, at to my to my left, and and Swidler was across the way, and Kramnik was next to him, and so forth, and. And we started talking about, you know, there was a match that no one has ever heard of where the, it was the USSR versus the USA at the under 16 level because they, there was a team from the Soviet Union at the time that actually visited the US. It had um, Kramnik on board four, <laughs> Swidler on board 10, right? Guess who was on board one? Hmm. So a team with Kramnik on four, Swidler on ten, it had Rublevsky, uh, you know, other strong players. But who could have played one? Uh, a grandmaster who is still active today. Morozevich? No, uh, no, he was not on the team. Nope. <laughs> you won't guess. Okay, so I'll give you a clue. He has now uh, moved to another country. Uh, Sokolov? No, good guess. No, it was Tiviakov. Ah, okay. I was on the right yeah. track. <laughs> <laughs> Tiviakov was board one. Uh-huh. Kramnik was board four. Wow. So we were talking about this and, you know, we, and, and Kramnik was giving me all these inside stories about, you know, what it was like to be on that team and who managed that team and, and what restrictions were placed on them, you know, as players, what they were allowed to do, not to do, which TV they could watch, uh-huh. which they could not watch. I mean, you know, things you would never find out unless, you know, it's just just right. very interesting to... I mean, those are the kind of details that, <laughs> that listeners of this podcast are always eager to hear. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who, who wish they could have been a fly on the wall yeah, for, for a dinner like that. Um, so we've got to unpack... Uh, Sunil, you, it strikes me that you're uniquely qualified. We one one common theme that we return to a lot on this podcast is the the nature of talent in chess. So, as someone who's taught you know thousands of kids over the years um, and seen people who you know can never grasp the nuances of how the pawn moves, uh, ranging that level to someone who goes on to become top ten in the world as Hikaru has. So. Uh, what do you think is the most important in terms of uh, what's most predictive of chess talent? That is a very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ben, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, mean, I would be training all these awesome players. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if you're not the one to answer, I don't know who I can ask. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, that... There really isn't any one answer. I think there are there are different ways to the top, you know, um, and um, you can get there by dint of hard work. You can get there, you know, just through a lot of play and you know practice. Like Hikaru, I remember an article Gelfand wrote once and said that Hikaru is the first of a new breed of chess players that just don't read anything and don't. <laughs> 
and don't study the classics uh-huh. but they play interminable number of games online you know and 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 that's the you know the accumulation of their experience and 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 that has worked too you know so um so it, it it's hard to say i think the most important ingredient though okay uh is passion mm-hmm. you know and whatever it is that you do i be it chess or anything else if you don't have the passion you know at some point you will you will give up you know uh so you have and passion and 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 self you know self confidence and you know and perseverance you know um and and knowing just being open to new ideas um because if you are not if you think you know everything or the moment you think you know everything that's when you you know you stop i remember you know one of one bit of advice that i gave hikaru was that um uh not to become conservative as he got older because what i had noticed was that everybody was becoming you know more conservative in that i guess people felt that they had a reputation to protect so your rating goes up then you are not willing to experiment because you worried that you lose some stupid game and then you look bad in the eyes of the world so so i remember telling hikaru you know don't ever be frightened to experiment um and play whatever you want you know whenever you want and of he course does. you know what yes. he did <laughs> and he took it to the extreme yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when he told me the night before at dinner in uh, in copenhagen you know i'm going to play queen h5 against uh, sasikaran tomorrow and i said over oh, my dead body <laughs> you know <laughs> and and he looked at me and um you know he realized i was you know sort of upset so he, he wisely dropped the subject but then next morning at breakfast there was that look in his eye you know and uh, i knew I, i just knew there was no i wasn't going to talk he said yeah i i've thought about it dad you know i'm i'm, I'm going to do it you know that's really funny <laughs> oh, that's great uh so and you've mentioned the So I wanted to pin down some details because you've mentioned in a prior interview uh many years ago that you didn't teach Hikaru and Asuka that much. Do you do you stand by that statement? <laughs> yeah, probably. You know, I mean, but I, what I did was I I created the proper environment, you know, for them to be able to flourish and I think that's that's very important. Uh I I certainly didn't spend as much time with Hikaru as I should have. Um and um you know in those days you you didn't have the computers but you had those handheld computers like the excalibur yeah, the and the no vag yeah. and stuff like that what hikaru would do being a, a sharp little kid you know he would play a game he would write everything down meticulous handwriting he'd write it down but he figured out that the computer always did the same thing so then the next game he would invert colors and he would play the other side ah. and then he would learn one more move <laughs> and then he'd invert it again and he gave me these reams of papers you know i mean i i feel guilty that i haven't really looked at all of them wow. never really went through them so to, to in that sense i i didn't spend a lot of time with him but you know but we went to tournaments and and Carolyn certainly did her part because there was no way I could leave and take him to Europe to play you know in international tournaments to give him that opportunity so you know she she took him around and um you know was very instrumental in his you know in those days we didn't have IM and GM norm tournaments yet I had to send him to Europe yeah yeah i remember 
Yeah, it, it was a lot different, even though it wasn't that long ago. Right. Um, and do you think that going to Europe made a big difference in his chess oh, development? Absolutely. I mean, there was no way he would not have made that title if he hadn't gone and played those tournaments. Well, I think he would have made it eventually. <laughs> eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but but your point is well taken. Yeah, I mean, we're we're lucky to now have some events where you can get norms here in the U.S. as well. Plus, just the you know with. With computers uh, being so readily available, you can just become so strong that it's almost exactly becoming. Yeah, you can be anywhere and you can do it, and you know, it's amazing what these kids have now. Yeah. So, Sunil, uh, our listeners always like to hear book recommendations. So we've, we've, other than your own, of course. So we've we've talked um, at length about um, your books, but what other books do you find yourself using for your teaching, or is there anything that you find that you consider a favorite? Well, in terms of tactics, you know, there are so many databases available now which are which are very good and, uh, you know, you just continue to work through them, you know, chess.com, chessbase, you know, they have, everybody has a, a really good database. So collection of books in that regard may be not quite as important. Um, the, in terms of, uh, in terms of beginners, you know, absolute beginners, I would say go back to Bobby Fisher teacher's chess. Hmm. You know, just read it from cover to cover, back to front, and you're going to be, you know, a strong, uh, uh, high beginning level, low intermediate, you know, just, just from that. And, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel when something, something works, you know. Um, but of the, of the more recent books that I find interesting, I find Jacob Argard's books very interesting. Um, and, uh, and, you know, on as far as end games go, I mean, you know, uh, I always liked John Nunn. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought John really, uh, explained things very well and, uh, not, you know, not so complicated that, that you lose yourself in, in variations. So. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, those those two uh Jakob Agard in particular, but John Nunn also has been been coming up a lot lately. So, do you get a chance to work on your chess at all these days? You uh, play in Gibraltar, right? You know, uh 2000 so this is 2018. I had the most miserable tournament I think I I ever had. I had five consecutive really bad tournaments. Uh but in 2017 uh Gibraltar I played very well. I I uh, scored five and a half out of ten in the in the in in the Masters, and um, and that was a really strong performance and everything. But I'm not sure what's happened, Ben. Uh, I mean, it's not that I'm that I'm uh, trying to. Well, first of all, I cannot tank my rating because <laughs> I have a flaw, right. and they won't let me go below the flaw. But but uh, I think my FIDE has actually dropped below 2,000, which is kind wow. of uh, amazing when you think about it. So it's about 200 and almost 300 points in about a year and a half, and I'm not sure exactly what happened. So I'm a little upset about that. Uh, so I'm hoping I'll get to play a little bit more. So, yeah, I mean... And again, anyone listening can can understand that we all have slumps, so I can certainly uh, relate to that. But in terms of uh, evaluating the quality of the play, so there's the rating difference. But is there like a, a common theme in what what's happening in your games that didn't used to happen before? Or? I think I'm just getting tired. Mm-hmm. You know, I I seem to be make, making the mistakes in the fourth hour of play. Right. 
you know, and maybe the thinking is not quite as sharp, you know, at, after, you know, an extended period of time. That's the only thing I can think of, really, because um, the rest of it um, seems to be fine. Yeah, chess is uniquely unforgiving in terms of... Uh you can't make one bad move. So uh, I, you know, it's not, I'm not breaking any news here, but, but, uh, but if the overall quality of your game may not be that much worse, but if you just throw in one or two real stinkers, that just ruins everything. So, right, um, right. yeah. And I, I think I, I know when John Watson came on the podcast, he was saying that that, that was what he was struggling with. He felt like he could still slug it out. And for the most part, play to a level that he could hold his head high about but then he would just have these these couple moves that you wish you could take back yes yeah and they and they can drive you crazy if you let them so yeah. so don't let them drive you crazy Sunil. i'll try and you don't have to worry you have a few more years before you get to that well, stage first I, have, yeah, first I have to get my kids old enough where i have time to crack open a chess book but but uh but yeah i look forward to hopefully uh you know my rating's not what it used to be either so i uh i hope to make another run so so, Zania, we have like just a couple more minutes. So one one other topic I wanted to address since we're here is just we're at nationals. Uh, do you even know how many national titles your teams have won? You know, I, I started counting them the other day because I, you know, it's probably useful information to have. But uh, it's definitely over 150, um, probably probably closer to 200 so i'm 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 just talking first places mm -hmm. in nationals so this is individual so and team. individual and team mm -hmm. yes yeah. wow that's incredible yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's amazing <laughs> and and you've revealed all the secrets you're going to reveal there's uh there's no more information forthcoming about how we can uh, mimic the success <laughs> <laughs> or no. at least we'll tune in for uh for the 25th anniversary book uh, book edition that'll be wonderful I'd love to come and talk more excellent well thanks Sunil my pleasure thank you Ben sure. thanks for having me the new Perpetual Chess theme music is courtesy of Geert Vandervelt special shout out to him I also want to thank everyone who supports the podcast that includes people who tell their friends about it people who write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts and most of all those who have donated to support the show I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Without the support of my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Chess partners, the show would not be possible. They are Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Andres Krizdua, I hope I did okay there, Andres, on your name, Alex Pejas, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Benastia, Jason Dunbar, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, Jen Shahadi, Jen Scream, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passy, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Tempo, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchak, Robert Steiner, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Sonix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotello, Victor Vrenkul, Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll be back next week with another great... Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. 
Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.